You are about to hear a history-making sound. The sound of a radio signal, man-made, transmitted from outer space. Listen, listen, listen. Hello and welcome to another episode of the PRISM Podcast, the podcast and blog where we analyze the spectrum of scientific, rational, and critical thought. I'm Jason Luchtefeld. And I'm Grant Ritchie. Thanks for joining us. Today is August 29th, 2013. This is our third podcast, so we're actually getting a few under our belt. Um, we appreciate everyone's feedback. Please follow us on Twitter at, at PRISM Podcast. You can like us on Facebook at Facebook slash prism podcast or check out our blog and our podcast notes at www.prismpodcast.com jason what have we got today today is exciting it is exciting Uh, we've moved on from our meeting review we got that wrapped up so today we are going to spend some time talking about john lennon's tooth i've heard of that guy before we do Yes. I wanted to let you know that it uh, looks like we may have a sponsor lined up. Really? For episodes now. So this first episode of sponsorship is going to be by Silly Putty. Silly Putty. Because the Apollo 8 astronauts used Silly Putty to keep their tools from floating around in zero gravity. Ah, that's amazing. That's amazing. How ingenuitive of them. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like Apollo 13 movie, which is, I think, my favorite movie of all time, where, you know, where they constructed that whole CO2 scrubber thing out of duct tape and, and mission uh, notes, cardboard covers. Did you see that? Yes. Absolutely amazing. Yes. Those NASA Speaking people. of which, I just read an article about duct tape versus duct tape. It's duct tape. It, well, it is now. But it started out as duck, D-U-C-K, because no, it was, it was in the military. It was used in the military, and they said that the water would roll off it like off a duck's back. So they called it duct tape. My and world then, is shattered. Yeah, it was later then used. So now, obviously, there's a brand that is duct tape, brand of right. duct Registered trademark. For your ducks. I just always yeah. assumed that it was duct tape because... It was used to, you know, air conditioning duct. That's, you know, that silver right. tape to, to seal the right. joints. God. No, another another a one wise one from the military. Yeah. Thank you, America. That's right, America. America. That's why we leave the free world. <laughs> just right. about everything because of our duct tapes. So yeah, today we're going to talk about John Lennon's tooth. Um, you can check out our blog where I wrote a little bit of, a, of an article about that, but it turns out that there's a dentist in Canada named Michael Zuck. Zuck? Zuck? How do you pronounce that? Z-U-K. I don't want to butcher it, so I apologize, but I'm going to say Zuck because I'm a phonetic type of guy, um, who a couple of years ago bought John Lennon's extracted, decayed, gross-looking molar at auction. Um, for $31,200. Is that American? Canadian? Canadian? Probably. Good question. He's from Canada. I don't know. But, you know, it was a great purchase. I mean, everyone likes to own, whether it's an autograph or a signed jersey or something, something that belongs to something, someone famous. 
you know, not only did, you know, it's not like a jersey that he wore or this is the bandana that he wiped his sweat with and, and threw out. And this was actually a, a body part that was attached to his body. So there could be some significant meaning to that. There could. <laughs> it would to me. I like that kind of stuff. I don't know about yeah. you. My first wonder is, obviously it's a publicity deal. Oh, but completely. But is, is this something that is going to get uh, patients in the door? Are, are people going to see, wow, this guy owns John Lennon's tooth. Dude, I, I want him to see him as my dentist. I, I want him to own my tooth as well. You know, I think his publicity is not so much because of the patients, although there's always a trickle effect. But also, you know, he's making the lecture circle. He's making the, uh, or at least at, at one point he was. I don't know if he still is. He's making the, the talk show thing. So I think it's, it's an attention-grabbing scenario, whether or not it actually is a marketing as in profit center for him. Yeah, um, I, think, I, think, I think you're right. He does have uh, at least a, a book or two, and he also has a couple courses on some orthodontic things and yeah. other stuff. And yeah. what better way to... You know, if he promises uh, attendees of his courses that they can gaze upon Lennon's, you know, decayed molar, then that might be a selling point. But yeah, but but I totally get it. Um, as I said in my blog, I would I would if I had thirty one thousand dollars laying around, I would totally buy John Lennon's tooth. I'm a huge you don't? Beatles. Well, yeah, but yeah, I bought someone from uh, I bought uh, someone from the Little River Band's tooth. <laughs> <laughs> I paid way too much for it, but um, okay. So as you're going to get into here in a minute, I think. Yeah. You know, my my issue is that a, a tooth is a tooth. It doesn't matter whose it is. So I, I can I can pull a tooth tomorrow and hold on to it in a jar for a few years, and then put it on eBay and say, and say that it's uh, you know Michael Jackson Jones's yeah. tooth or yeah whatever. Well, and yes, you and could. tie a story to it, and until somebody DNA tests it, we assume that it is this valuable, amazing thing that people are are worshiping. So no, you're you're right, and that and that kind of begs the question: is what is it about that tooth that makes it valuable? I mean, yes. it's a very interesting. It's a very interesting phenomenon. Just the the whole the whole psychological concept of owning something, whether it's an autograph or um, an actual physical piece of property that belongs to someone whom you value, whether it's a celebrity, it's usually a celebrity or an athlete, that type of thing. That there's a connection there, and why do people do that? I mean, why? Why are autographs valuable? Why is John Lennon's tooth valuable? I mean, it's sold. I mean, if he wouldn't have bought it, someone else would have. Mm -hmm. So it's not just that this guy is, has a decayed molar fetish. I mean, it's. I mean, someone else would have. Yeah, uh, somebody else bid thirty-one thousand one hundred fifty. Yeah, yeah. So. And uh, Zuck had the 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 last paddle, and so, you know, th as a person that can understand that, because I have. Um, such icons myself. Um, I'm a big Kansas University basketball fan, and so I have some autographs from players. I have um, bobblehead dolls of KU players, both in the pro and college ranks. I have um, sections of the floor of Allen Fieldhouse, which is obviously the greatest place, uh, college basketball venue 
ever anywhere. And when they replaced the floors, they kept the little, the old floors up in little, I think 12 by 12 or 18 by 18 chunks. And they, they sell them to idiot fans like me who gladly buy it because there's a connection there. And you're right. They could, they could cut up a floor from, you know, some slaughterhouse, you know, in Western Kansas that, you know, they slaughter pigs on and say, Hey, this was an Allen field house. And they put a stamp on it. And, what is that that distinguishes the real from the the artifact? Yeah, all of a sudden that value changes. It goes yeah. from being a piece of wood to a piece of wood that that means somebody something. sweat on. Yeah, that means I something. Mean, that think was about there. The guys that sweat on that floor yeah. that you bought, Grant. And it's a so and it's a it's a completely psychological phenomenon. There's no actual physical quality that is imbued into that artifact that provides it with greater value. So are there people that, that think that, though? If we're, if we're talking like Deepak Chopra oh, world, well. you know, or are there those that, that want those items because they yeah. think it's going to give them uh, the yeah, power or a, the essence or the aura of whatever else touched it or wore it or oh, it was part of. Absolutely, absolutely. Because, I mean, above and beyond just hero worship, which I think is, a, is, a, is kind of a, a good paradigm or overall theme of why someone would collect something. I mean, it's a, you know, even if it was Deepak Chopra, you know, I own um, Gandhi's, uh, you know, white little cheesecloth toga or whatever he wore you know you know those of us totally politically incorrect i'm i, I apologize but no i mean you mo- wore a cheesecloth <laughs> well you know what what's that muslim uh muslim squeezing amalgam <laughs> kind of did you see the movie you know the little loinclothy thing <laughs> i'm a great fan of gandhi but i'm not a, i'm not familiar with his clothing uh styles but you know, it's that it's that uh, cloth. Anyway, anyway, it was Gucci. <laughs> it's a Gucci cloth. Um, but I mean, if you just man, this was a great man. I respect him. This actually belonged to him. That would be meaningful. But I'm sure there are those who would say this actually has the essence of Gandhi in it. And by contacting it, by viewing it, I mean, you can see that in the all the ridiculous, you know. Virgin Mary on a piece of toast or, you know, a relics, you know, take a, take a chapter out of, of religion playbook, you know, a, a relic, you know, that's not just like, oh, that, those are the bones of some saint. There's some mystical power contained within those bones that can heal, that can solve problems, that can do all that. But I don't really think we're talking about that here with John Lennon's tooth. Although he did say they were bigger than God, but that's a different story. Well, they might be, as as God is omnipotent and omnipresent, omnipresent all around us. Yes, its physical manifestation of the tooth is technically bigger. Yes, right, right, right. You know, so just so trying the, to make it clear exactly, and so this, this there is a phenomenon. I mean, and it's called uh, essentialism. And it is the belief that every individual and every object 
has something unique that de- that defines its true nature. And you know this type, uh, you know this thinking goes all the way back to Aristotle, where there you know there's some inherent nature that every object possesses. And there have been some some really interesting psychologists who have spoken on this. Um, there's a great YouTube about uh, from uh, Paul Bloom, who explains you know if you were to they did some some actual psychological experiments where um, I think they used George the example of George Clooney's sweater is how much would you they they polled whoever the uh, participants were in the experiments, how much would you pay for a, a sweater that was owned by George Clooney? And I think the average was $135. And they say, well, how much would you pay for it if we washed it before we gave it to you? And the price dropped, I think, to $105 or something. I can't remember the exact numbers. There's a great TED Talk about that. So, there, so people, psych, psychologically or not, believe that there's some George Clooney essence that they would rather have the sweater having contacted George Clooney and coming directly to them versus one that's been washed in the interim, which I find completely fascinating. So what you're saying is that a sweater that was owned and worn by George Clooney and mm-hmm. not washed would have a maximum value a sweater that was owned by George Clooney but was was not sweaty right would have an intermediate value yes and then a sweater that he um, brushed his arm against at Macy's but never purchased would have a, a lesser, minimum value right because there's a you know there's that belief that that some of that essence can connect or be transferred to other people, mm-hmm. and it, it's it's kind of strange for me to even say that because any I think rational person would would say that's ridiculous, and so I don't think that's a, a conscious thought. But I think there's just I mean, and I think I'm so, guilty of it myself when I you know I've got you know again going back to my Kansas basketball is Fog Allen was the revered coach of Kansas from the early 1900s through the 50s. And is called the, the the father of modern basketball coaching, and and any KU fan is just a huge disciple of Fog Allen. I have one of the books that he wrote that was autographed by him, and I'm sure there's a price that I think I bought it for twenty five dollars um, at a used bookstore. I don't think they knew that it was autographed. I, I lucked out on that one, and right now I'm, I'm it's not for sale. Not to say that someone didn't offer me some amount that I wouldn't let go of it, but it's one of those things that, for some reason, that book is very meaningful to me. Never knew the guy. It's just stinking basketball game. I mean, I love key basketball, but it's not like it's anything really important or anything. And, you know, that's different than if that book was on a PDF file that I downloaded to my computer. It has an essence to it that, when I say it out loud, it seems completely ludicrous but then I kind of readily admit that somewhere deep in my fiber, I subscribe to it. Yeah, that's interesting. And I wonder if this essence can, can transmit the common cold. That's a good question. Do you have any of those? Do you have any um, 
heroes or something that that would value to you, or are you pretty stoic on the whole thing? No, I, well, nowadays I'm I'm pretty stoic, and I'm, and that comes from uh, the last couple of years, uh, it just uh, growing trying up. to see. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I've aged dramatically in the That's last right. two years, trying to simplify things. Right. And no, there was a time where I would I did a, have value, and to be honest, I'd still probably would for for certain things. So, for yeah. example, uh, I. I have a tattoo and I use the likeness of someone that I like, a runner that I like. Tweety Bird? For, yeah. <laughs> Roadrunner. Yeah, excellent. No. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Wiley Coyote. Uh, so, yeah. um, so like, there is some of that. Right. But at the same time, I, I guess I've done a little bit of reading on our accumulation of stuff and our attachment to stuff in general and getting a bigger house so you can have more stuff to fill it and that just continues on and on mm-hmm. and you see the extremes of that on on TV with shows like the hoarders and yeah. and all that extreme example but they the simple fact is that as you already said it's it's just stuff and so it is stuff so so you're coming at it not so much because you don't think, oh, I don't worship this hero. This is not me. It's just in general, you don't you don't put a lot of, of credibility into accumulation of material things, right. right? Of which that is a subset, right? But you know, the interesting thing is that also works in the reverse. Bruce Hood has a phenomenal book called Super Sense that he put out a few years ago, and I, I encourage all our listeners to, to if they haven't read it to go get it. But, you know, he talks about this sweater phenomenon. Um, Paul Bloom talks about George Clooney's sweater. Bruce Hood talks about Jeffrey Dahmer's sweater. Right. And it's so great because people are completely, you know, he holds up a nice-looking sweater and says, hey, would anyone like to wear this sweater? And most people are like, yeah, sure, whatever. And he puts them on, and he's like, well, that's Jeffrey Dahmer's sweater. And there's a visceral reaction uh, generally speaking, that people can't take that sweater off fast enough. Not everyone, yeah. of course, because again, that gets back to essentialism. There, you know, because it's been associated at some level or in contact with some evil person, people get the heebie-jeebies because now that's contacting them. There's a uh, there's a movie that that reminds me of, where a serial killer uh, died. Yeah, and they used his organs to oh. uh, save several yeah. other people. So he was an you know, organ his, donor. Yeah, his eyes went to somebody, his heart went to somebody, and those people then took on some of the characteristics of that serial killer. So this movie really, yeah, really uh, kind of emphasizes on yeah. this concept. Yeah, uh, and I think, I think and, and it's not that, and it's I don't think it's that. Everyone has seen that movie and thinks that's happened. But I think it just puts into art the underlying feeling that a lot of people have. Yeah. It just expresses the feelings. But it's really interesting because, again, if you really challenge people on that, they would say that's ridiculous. There's no way that Jeffrey Dahmer's essence could be transferred to me or whatever. But still, there's just a visceral reaction when people say you know it, it just triggers all of these this behavior this this reaction and um so you know with john lennon's tooth 
man, he was he was a beetle. He was probably the most revered beetle. Uh, if, if you know, arguably, everyone has their favorite beetle, of course, and I don't want to get in the middle of that. But I mean, John Lennon was the face of the Beatles, and and so anything and, and he was his life was cut short. He was assassinated in 1980, and so any. Thing of course makes that more valuable once once they're gone. So you know it is a relic in a certain way, and I know that there's a dentist, uh, Bill Dorfman from the Extreme Makeover shows that that a lot of people may be familiar with. You know he's admitted to collecting celebrities' teeth. Now I can't say whose they are, and uh, I'm I'm betting a good thousand dollars that one of them is Charlie Sheen's, but that's just my. It's my own opinion. I mean, I think I'm pretty safe in that. <laughs> it, it has tiger blood in it. <laughs> it has tiger blood. It's, yeah. But um, so I'm, I'm guessing that. But, you know, he's kind of the dentist of the stars in Hollywood. and, and Or Lindsay Lohan. I mean, she's probably lost a few to, to whatever activity she's doing. But anyway, you know, I there's a um, friend of mine in Lawrence, Kansas, who um, is a dentist. And in the 70s... In an emergency, Elton John was in the area for a, for a concert and had a toothache, and this guy took out Elton John's tooth and saved it. And wow. it was kind of a little bragging point, and everyone was ooing and aahing. I never did get to see it, but I was very impressed that he had Elton John's tooth. I mean, I don't know. but uh, So that's pretty cool. Um, so you can definitely see what's going on. But this guy now... Not only does he just own it and everyone, ooh, ah, you've got John Lennon's tooth, which is pretty gnarly. I mean, if you look at it, I was, I was very disappointed that uh, my one of my musical heroes didn't floss better. You know, you would think it, the money he made, he could have hired someone to come floss for him or something. But, um, but now he's saying that he wants to get the DNA from the nerve of the tooth and clone John Lennon. So what's up right. with that? Well, I, technically, I guess it's possible. Uh, I, I did just a little bit of searching on this and found that uh, in 2007, some ancient DNA was extracted from bones and teeth of um, some pretty old samples. And so you're talking more like Elvis Presley? <laughs> that's right. That's <laughs> yeah. right. So... Showed signs of uh, Al Jolson. Constipation. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you're saying an ancient, ancient, not like prehistoric, yes. not just like uh, old singers. Yeah. So the first argument is okay, this tooth is there, and what's the likelihood that he's going to be able to extract anything from it? Right. Because it's it's been sitting who knows where and who knows what chemicals and, and all that kind of stuff. Right. And it's very possible it's been stored in some chemical has killed everything yeah formaldehyde or yeah alcohol or but let's just say that that it wasn't stored in something that would kill it the fact that there's technology now available to potentially uh harvest some of this and reconstitute it is really interesting really and it sounds like it's it's somewhat possible uh this allowed an extraction of DNA within two days, and uh, there is a, a certain amount of degradation that happens, and it's, it's inexact, I would say, but... Yeah. The, but, not, but not totally out of the pale of possibility. Right. 
Right. Well, so I think that, you know, assuming that it takes a couple of days to get that going and, you know, you have the, you have to culture it and the right temperatures, all that kind of stuff. I think, you know, if we're seeing some, some boy band form 30 or 40 years from now uh-huh. that has some dark hair that's, little mop top you know, guy yeah yeah that that maybe you never know the sad thing is if john lennon's clone baby was born today and grew up who knows what his musical i mean he'd, he'd, yeah he'd be a rapper he'd, he'd be a rapper he'd be a sure. darn good one. but you know and the reason that teeth usually with especially with, whether it's ancient humans or whatever that you see teeth mentioned alongside of cloning is the tooth is a great um, preserving case. I mean, for better, lack of a better word, of of DNA. Because if you know a Neanderthal, for example, dies and fossilizes, you know all his DNA, his living tissue, for the most part, is degraded, decomposes, is eaten by bacteria, by predators, whatever. But in the tooth being that hard enamel shell, which does not really fossilize, does not degrade, within the nerve of the tooth, DNA can survive much longer there than it can even in bone marrow or any other uh, artifact of, of, a, of a dead body. So that is why uh, the nerve of the tooth is, is frequently used in those situations. Now, in so, John Lennon's case... Oh, go ahead. Yeah, so just to expand on that a little bit more... The, the tooth that you described, that's this casing, this housing, it's hard, it doesn't degrade. And, that, and then stuff can be harvested because in the middle of the tooth, for those listeners that yeah. don't know dental anatomy, there's a, a chamber that houses nerve, blood vessel stuff. Mm. Yeah. So Living that tissue. Can actually, yeah, that can actually be then oftentimes used in that process. Right. So, it, thank you for, for clarifying. Because, yeah, it's... Even when, when they die and they're, it's, it's just protected from the elements, for lack of a better term. Now, in, in Lennon's case, if you look at the picture, he had a huge cavity on that, which means there was bacteria that actually entered into the nerve tissue. That nice, safe enamel housing, in his case, was pretty destroyed. So it doesn't really fall under that, meet those criteria. Whether or so not this wasn't a it wasn't a left hook from Paul McCartney that took no us it out. wasn't this was a no. left hook from some strep mutans bacteria so we'll see I you know like we said this is a publicity stunt I would have to imagine that there's really no way that any viable DNA could be pulled out to the extent that that cloning would even be a remote possibility who knows maybe you can sequence you know a few genes or whatever and just kind of see some of of John Lennon's uh, DNA. But then again, let's just pretend like they hit the mother load and they could sequence every single one of John Lennon's DNA, uh, every one of his genes, and, and could theoretically clone him. I mean, do you think legally, ethically, you know, do you think that's even possible? You think Yoko would say, yeah, fine, go ahead, you know, make another one, I don't care, make, make 10, make 20. I mean, there's so many, that's such uncharted territory where ethicists and the laws, you know, are just beginning to, to consider. And so it would be held up in court longer than it would be held up in the science lab. I, I totally agree. Yeah. I think it, it's a great it thought experiment. Impressed. I mean, it's fun for everyone just to, pardon the pun, imagine. 
Imagine there's a John Lennon. It's easy if you try. You know, just that thought experiment is kind of fun because, you know, we're headed there somewhere, somehow, whether it's 50 years from now or 200 years from now. Things like that will become a reality. It's not complete science fiction. It's just a little far-fetched and, you know, the fact that some guy buys a tooth at auction and then, you know, has a plan to make a new make a new John Lennon is, you know, a little far-fetched, but he's yeah. milking it and he's going to make his $31,000 back in endorsements or publicity or whatever and, you know, good for him that he's doing that. He just, you know, some people are out there, but yeah, it's really it's a pretty fun thing. It is interesting, and it, it's it's fun to have dentistry out there in kind of a fun, entertaining light. Yeah, yeah. Versus the normal dental story you hear that's all marathon doom man. and gloom, and yeah. yeah. So yeah, I, I agree. It's and a, this it's is dentistry fun. that really, apart from the fact that it's a tooth, doesn't have to do with dentistry. I mean, it's it's the dental interface with biotechnology and genetics and and you know futuristic technology. So. So that's pretty fun. It is. It is. But, you know, the nice coincidence is on this day in Beatle history, speaking of John Lennon, in 1958, yes. the John Lennon and Paul McCartney asked this young 16-year-old boy named George Harrison to join their band called the Quarrymen. And uh, so George Harrison joined what would later become the Beatles on this day in 1958. And what else happened, Jason? Well, also in Beatles history, while we're talking about them, find what ended up being the last public concert for the Beatles uh, was this date, or this, yeah, this yeah. date in 1966 at Candlestick Park. How old and, were you then, Jason? Uh, let's see. <laughs> um, Minus I wasn't even ten. a glimmer. You weren't yeah. even I was. I was in first grade. Well, I was just getting ready to enter first grade. I I was six years old at yeah. the time, and and uh, and the interesting thing is, they said that his, that Lennon's tooth was extracted somewhere between 1964 and 68, and it was ah. given to his housekeeper, just for some sick reason. I don't know. She's a momentum, momento. So maybe his tooth was killing him during the Candlestick Park concert. Maybe that's why the Beatles quit touring. It could we be. We don't know. So he would have been, uh, yeah, mid to late 20s then, huh? So, okay. Um, probably so, because he was born early 40s. 40. Yeah. In, in 40, 1940? Yeah. 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 So he would have been 25, 26, 25, I think. So there, is still, there is still some discussion about which tooth it is. Yes. Isn't there? We think it's an upper molar. Right. And I... I've tried to figure it out, and it's, it's kind of tough. A lot of the distinguishing anatomy has been destroyed by the decay. Mm, yeah. If you guys have any ideas, would like to offer it, send it in to feedback at prismpodcast.com, and uh, we'll see what everyone's opinion is. i got a couple more things for yeah. just some, some this week in history, or even history in general. So since we were talking about a tooth, throw out a couple little dental history facts for you and let's see if you were to go to the dentist or I guess at the time the doctor because mm -hmm. there weren't really dentists in uh, 15 AD and you had the a blacksmith yes the, or the barber right the barber yes 
if you had a toothache in 15 AD, you would be made an ointment to apply to this toothache that was made from earthworms, crushed spider eggs, and spikenard. Spikenard? They drill a, yeah, they drill a hole in the tooth. Uh, obviously, no anesthetic. Is it safe? And they would plug it with this concoction of ingredients to help relieve the pain. And uh, well, I wonder what they would drill with. Probably little hand files or hand drill. They obviously didn't yeah, have. Uh, yeah. Uh, up until actually, the last just couple hundred years, it was a uh, hand drill with like a, a hand all that you would yeah. you would you've seen at auctions yeah. around probably. It, them was the good old days. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know what, though? The benefit to that. What? That would not have had the same sound of our yes. drills today that everybody complains about. That's true. They would complain more if we used a hand awl. Maybe I should pull that out next time. Yeah. Pull out the hand awl, say, I'll hey, give you, you I'll give you something to, Yeah, I'll give <laughs> yeah. you something to cry about. Here yeah. you go. <laughs> 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 That's a practice builder. I'm sure people would be flocking to your office after that, oh. after word gets out. So, I love um, it. No, but that was that was very interesting. So check it out on our on www.prismpodcast.com. Uh, and there are other great articles there as well. Any advice, any feedback, compliments, criticisms, please let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Anything else, Jason? I think that'll wrap up a nice uh, little episode. All right. Well, thanks, everyone, for joining us, and we will see you next time. Good night. When you are studying any matter or considering any philosophy, ask yourself only what are the facts and what is the truth that the facts bear out. Science is more than a body of knowledge. It's a way of thinking, a way of skeptically interrogating the universe. If we are not able to ask skeptical questions, to be skeptical of those in authority, then we're up for grabs. In all of science, we're looking for a balance between data and theory. You don't have to delude yourself with irony and fairy tales. The same spiritual fulfillment that people find in religion can be found in science by coming to know, if you will, the mind of God. The real world, as it actually is, is not evil. It's remarkable. And the way to understand the physical world is to use science. There is a new wave of reason sweeping across America, Britain, Europe, Australia. South America, the Middle East and Africa, there is a new wave of reason, where superstition had a firm hold. Teach a man the reason, think for a lifetime, think for a lifetime. Cosmology brings us face to face with the deepest mysteries questions that were once treated only in religion and myth. The desire to be connected with the cosmos reflects a profound reality. We are connected, not in the trivial ways that astrology promises, but in the deepest ways. I can't believe the special stories that have been made up about our relationship to the universe at large. But look at what's out there. It isn't in proportion. Science is more than
Think for a lifetime. Think for a lifetime. 